You are listening to the National. It's a nice place to speak, good crowd. I hope I don't fail. <laughs> it's, it's an honor to speak at America's oldest and best Air Force, I would say, military museum. And um, I appreciate the introduction by General Metcalf. And I had a wonderful day here touring the facilities, the preservation effort. You people are lucky, really, you know, blessed to have a place like this to visit regularly. I wish I were closer. I want to thank, you know, General Carlson as well for having me on his reservation here. And um, I guess I better acknowledge all the brass. I learned that from my Marine Corps training. General Klotz, <laughs> fellow Oxfordian, if you will. Um, I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about World War II, and then we'll segue into uh, a piece on the, uh, on the Eighth Air Force. And I want to leave plenty of time also for, um, for questions. So um, if you save your questions till the end, I'd be happy to stay as long as you know, I, I don't fly out of here till tomorrow at 9 o'clock, so <laughs> we have plenty of time. I want to begin with a, uh, with a short film clip from the 303rd Bomb Group. Uh, they put it together themselves, but it gives you the sense of fury and horror and uh, that these kids, they were kids at the time, the average air crew age in 1943 was 23 years old uh, experience. So why don't we start with that, and then I'll... Return. World War II was the um, most destructive war in the history of humankind. Some people estimate that uh, more people died in that war than in all of the wars since the beginning of recorded time. We do know that the figure is, thanks to our work recently in the Russian archives, the figure is up to six, 60 million dead civilians and soldiers. Two-thirds of those who died in the war were civilians, and the, a great number of them were under the age of nine years old. It's also the first war on terror in human history. I read an article recently in the New York Times by a distinguished historian at Harvard, and he said 9-11 changed everything, and militarily it changed everything, because now for the first time in the history of warfare, the main objective of the enemy is, to, is not the military forces of a nation, but the civilian population. They are the targets. Well, that's not quite right. They are the targets, but they were the targets also in large in, in World War II. The Nazis began, and the Japanese in the Pacific at places like Shanghai, and the Germans at places like Rotterdam, and Warsaw, and London, and Coventry, began a war of terror on civilians. There's a great film by William Wyler, of course, the William Wyler of Memphis Bell. And uh, he won an Academy Award for it in 1940. It's called Mrs. Miniver. And there's a terrific scene in Mrs. Miniver where um, a pastor in a bombed out church is standing before his congregation and he's speaking eloquently about the situation that they're in. And he says, we are in a different kind of war. 
we're in a kind of war where the enemy flies over our armies and hits us. The supposed innocence in this struggle. We are the targets. In many cases, we are the victims. And Churchill, I think, summed this up when he called it a people's, a people's war, or a war, as he often called it, of unknown warriors. So when you come to World War II, you come to something that's, that's there's a lot of glory in it, um, but it's a sad experience. Uh, my father served in the 8th Air Force and never, as a radio gunner, and never talked about his experiences. My uncle was with the first wave on D-Day with the big red one. I couldn't get six sentences out of him before he died, and he lived to be an old man, and I was curious. But it is a war of unrelieved destruction, and people don't like to talk about it afterwards. As one vet told me, my war didn't last four years, it lasted 40. Well, the Allies, in response to German terror attacks on civilians, they struck back, and they struck back with horrific fury. And um, by the time the war is over, 61 German cities have been turned to cinder and ash, almost wiped off the face of the earth. A similar number of Japanese cities with even more square mileage of wreckage and ruin. We don't know how many people died under the bombs, but the figures are roughly, in Germany, 600,000 dead civilians. And we do know that over 20 million Germans were made homeless by the war. The Luftwaffe also lost heavily in the war, well over 70,000 airmen. In fact, you hear a lot of stories about the U-boat crews, and they suffered horrifically, you know, and the percentage of deaths to those who survived is, is just harrowing, but uh, the figures are close. It's not, they don't, the Luftwaffe don't exceed them in, in horror. So, but there, in this war, there are two sets of victims. I deal with both of them in my book. I deal with the people who were under the bombs in London, in France, in Normandy, uh, along the shoreline, and um, all over the Reich. But I deal centrally with the second set of victims, the kids who flew the planes, because they were victims too. They wanted to be home messing around with their 39 Chevys, playing football, eating ice cream sundaes, going out for a hamburger. They didn't want to be in this war. Nobody wanted to get pulled into this thing. And the kids who flew suffered horribly. Take the uh, Royal Air Force, Bomber Command. 110,000 men served in Bomber Command in World War II. 55,000 of them were killed. Take the 8th Air Force, one of many US Air Forces. Casualties very high, 26,000 killed, 28,000 POWs. Now think of the number 26,000. Um, this is one of the things that triggered my interest in the 8th Air Force. I was doing a book on the Pacific and computing the figures and roughly 100,000 American soldiers lost their lives in the Pacific. 20,000 Marines died in the entire Pacific War from Guadalcanal to Okinawa. Well, the 8th Air Force, a relatively small unit flying out of England, sustained 6,000 more casualties in the war than the entire U.S. Marine Corps. Your chances of surviving, if you were one of the pioneers, as they call them, those guys who flew with, you know, 
the cruise of the Memphis Belle and Bob Morgan, who got to England in August of 1942 and generally started completing their 25th mission around May and June the following year. Those guys had a one in three chance of surviving. Those aren't good odds. You have a better odds playing Russian roulette. Harrison Salisbury, the New York Times, said to be a member of the 8th Air Force, and he covered them, is to hold a ticket to a funeral, your own. One of the characters in my book, Robert Rosie Rosenthal, who enlisted the day after Pearl Harbor, wanting to fight the Japanese, as most of these kids did, and found themselves in England fighting the Germans. Rosie, on his first mission, flew to a place called Munster, a German railroad center, with the 100th Bomb Group, my dad's outfit. He was the only plane to return. And he was in shock. He got out of the plane and he burst out crying. He couldn't believe it. He looked around. Nobody wasn't crying for himself. He was crying for the crewman. He didn't even know. He didn't even know. So this, this was a hard war. But it was also a brand new kind of war, which made it even harder. Nobody had ever fought and flown this high before. World War I, there's an air war, and it's terrifically savage. It's been romanticized, but it was savage. It was like trench warfare in the sky. World War II, though, is fought above 10,000 feet, at 20,000 feet, where the air is unbreathable. And the sun is actually your enemy, because you're seen. And to be seen is to be a target, a clear target. And the fresh air that we all like to breathe at that level, at that height, of course, is, is a killer. It's because it's unbreathable. You can't, it's like going to the moon. When you go up that high, you can't survive without the aid of machines. And these machines have a tendency to break down. And countless crews died, not from German flacker fighters, but from malfunctions, the result of the weather, which was a bigger enemy in the first six, seven months of operations than the Luftwaffe. It's new in another respect, too. Nobody had ever tried strategic bombing before. The Americans went at it a little differently than the Brits. The Brits, beginning in 1940 and extending into 1942, tried precision bombing in daylight, hitting military targets only and not civilians. The bombing was abysmally inaccurate, and the planes got savaged by the German Air Force. So they flew in the dark, and they died in the dark. And they didn't hit targets very accurately, so they reverted necessarily to area bombing or carpet bombing. Later in the war, they would emulate with fire and fury entire cities like Dresden and Sforzden. And the Americans were going to go at it differently, as you know. Um, we had this technological utopianism. We had a plane. B-17. We had a great bomb site, a Norden bomb site. As the myth went, you could drop bombs from 20,000 feet into a pickle barrel. And daylight bombing would allow the Americans, of course, to hit strategic targets, nodal targets, um, choke points, they called them, things that all industries need, steel, electricity, ball bearings. We won't have to bomb entire cities. We could surgically bomb. And we went in this with the idea that we'll fly so high, 
to the B-17, to the B-24, and so fast that we'll fly above the flak and fast, as fast or faster than the fighters. So there's not much attention given to providing escort services. And, of course, it didn't work. It didn't work. Pinpoint bombing turned out to be an oxymoron. But more on this later. The point is, this is, if the history of the Eighth Air Force throughout World War II is a history of the testing of a theory, the theory I just mentioned, strategic bombing. And we'll assess at the end of the talk whether it worked or not in my estimation. And put some maps up and show you the targets and I'll try to give you some explanations. But right now I want to emphasize again the strangeness of the thing. First thing, 70% of the air crews in 1942 and 43 had never been in an airplane before they joined the Air Force. Okay? Not, not a commercial plane, not a trainer, nothing. Okay. So that's new. One of my characters, uh, Judge Nutter, who's still alive in California, was at Syracuse University trying to woo his wife at a party in January. And the following December, he's a sophomore, by the way, at Syracuse, the following December, He's navigating a plane across the frozen Atlantic from Maine to Ireland, you know, with a skeletal crew. And guess what? He didn't have a driver's license. The battlefront is strange. East Anglia. And those are the bases in East Anglia. It's like a little pork chop, hand, you know, or an axe, as I point out in the book, pointed at the Reich. And there were the American 8th Air Force bases. Imagine trying to come back for a mission and find one of those things. I mean, find your own, I should say. It's not hard to find a base, let alone your own. Uh, but there's the, strangest, there's the strangest battlefront in history. Remember, William, William Wilder opens the, the film, The Memphis Belly, he goes, this is a battlefront. This is a war front the strangest war front in history. And in the film, there's Norman churches in the background. Here, there's the smell of hay and cows and things like this. This is a strange place to fight a war. We turned England into an aircraft carrier and mounted our missions. And, and the 8th the Air Force, these, these guys are the first to strike right at the heart of the Reich. I mean, they take the war right to Hitler's doorstep. And this is the longest military campaign in World War II. It's longer even than the U-boat campaign on the American side. And it's a, um, it's a strange kind of thing, too. Um, Ira Aker, who founded this Air Force, uh, to give you a sense of its newness, the 8th was founded in February, uh, excuse me, January, following Pearl Harbor, one month after Pearl Harbor, in Savannah, Georgia. And at that time, there were seven men in the 8th Air Force and no planes. That's in 1942. By D-Day, 1944, the 8th Air Force is the largest striking force in the history of warfare. That's how fast they ramped this thing up. And from England, they hit targets all over the Reich. I'll leave that map up there, and we'll come back to it later. Now, again, to the strangeness of this thing, with the, you know, these civilian warriors flying these planes, these kids, it, it was strange, too, because it was intermittent warfare. Um, you had these bouts of fury and 
absolute fear followed by these long bouts of worry and waiting, worrying on the line because of the weather. You're, you're out on the tarmac waiting, waiting, waiting to take off. That ate on guys' nerves. And a lot of the so-called psychological breakdowns that occur in the war occurred as a result of that, these phobias that develop about, you know, and worry, pre-mission worry and pre-mission concern. I mean, it, it was something. I, one of the people I interviewed for this book a lot was Andy Rooney, and Andy covered, he worked for Stars and Stripes, the Army newspaper, and he covered the air bases. And he said, on the one hand, they were like college campuses because everybody was so young. But he said it was like visiting a funeral parlor in the middle of the war. The mood was so somber. And the men, some of the men, so white with anxiety and fear. And it, although there's a lot of dying going on, it's strange because there's no corpses. Very few dead airmen were returned to England. There were many more deaths than serious injuries in the 8th Air Force. And when a plane went down, usually everybody went down and became, in a sense, lost to the war. Either they became an invader and got out with the help of the French and Belgian underground, or they became a POW, or they were killed in, in the crash, in the explosion. And so you never got closure with friends. There were hardly any funerals, burials, viewings. You got up one day and played a softball game, and you don't have a right fielder, a second baseman, a catcher, and a third baseman. Where are they? They're gone. They're gone. A lot of guys came on bases, didn't want to make friends, because they saw what making friends meant. It meant losing friends. So they stayed to themselves. And it's such a different kind of warfare. I live near, or not too far away from the Gettysburg battlefield. And I can go to Gettysburg, and I can try to reconstruct in my mind whether or not Pickett was insane to make that charge on George Meade's position on Cemetery Hill from Seminary Ridge. And I can go to similar battlefields and experience the battle, as it were. Patton loved to do that, you know, and uh, only with ancient battles and fields. But I can't do that with an air fight. All of a sudden, I mean, the air is filled with Harrison Baldwin wrote a story in the, in the New York Times during the war, and he said, in an average air raid at the end of the war, there were half a million people committed. That includes pilots, crew, civilians who were going to be hit, et cetera, et cetera, radar, German installations, et cetera. Huge operation. And you have this furious fight in the sky with as many as 60 B-17s or Liberators spinning to the, going into death spins and hitting the ground. One pilot said he looked out the window and he saw haystacks burning. Well, they weren't haystacks, they were B-17s. They were in a place on their way with Curtis LeMay to a place called Regensburg. And yet, when the, in, in the midst of the battle, you have the Luftwaffe pouring in on you six and seven abreast and tearing apart these planes, and bodies are flying all over the sky. Engines you know that have been blown off wings are flying around in the sky. Guys are going down in parachutes. Guys are going down in burning parachutes. Some guys are standing on their wing and just getting blown off. They don't have a parachute. A Luftwaffe pilot described it to me this way. He said, it was like, to me, it was like a gigantic ashtray, 100 yards wide, like a football field, or, or he said a soccer pitch. And you just turn the ashtray with all its detritus and smoke and soot in it, and you turn it upside down. He said, that's what it looked like, a junkyard in the sky. But then. He said, when the Americans, when they left, and we went back up 
It was beautiful. The sky was clear, baby blue, the sun's out. There's no sign that there's a battle. You can never reconstruct a battle like this, never. That's why so many Air Corps guys, in the Marine Corps, everybody knows what Taro is, Iwo Jima, beaten into you, you know. Um, I, I, I spoke to the Air Force about this this summer. They should teach the cadets the same thing. There were big air battles, like Munster and Stuttgart, and several Berlin battles and places like that, and Regensburg. And, but it should be taught. But you can't reconstruct them quite the same way. So you can't learn a lot of lessons about how to fight an air war. You can't learn a lot, unless you fly with the crews like Curtis LeMay did, and that's how he learned his lessons. And he was the greatest air commander of that war. And the other thing about it is, unlike a battle that's fought on the ground, and I'm not saying ground warfare is tougher than air warfare, or air warfare is tougher than ground warfare, they're both hellish. But on the ground, you can retreat, or you can reinforce. And who's, who's telling you to retreat or reinforce? A general who's in overall command of the situation of the battle. A Napoleon, okay, someone like a Caesar, a Grant, okay. But at Eichelberger in the Pacific, no, but Bradley. In the air war, there aren't. You know, I mean, Acre flew on that first mission, and then they grounded him, okay? Spots didn't fly with the crews. Master General, you know, he didn't fly with his crews. Base commander would. But these kids are largely on their own. When they fly to the target, they fly directly in the target, no matter what the opposition is, no matter how many casualties they take, no matter how staggering the odds, they go directly to the target. Not a single 8th Air Force mission was ever turned back. You can't call for reinforcements. You're on radio silence, and if you do call for them, there aren't any. If you're hit in the sky, if you're wounded in the plane, you can't scream, medic. There are no medics. So they put you on the frozen floor of the plane at 56 degrees below zero and throw a blanket over you, try to comfort you, give you some morphine, and maybe five hours later, you hope you're alive, you don't bleed out when you get back to England. So it's, it's not worse than combat on the ground, but it's, it's bad. It's, it, 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 it's fully as bad. I talked to a vet who said he was in a London bar and they were exchanging blouses you know, the, you know, with some um, infantrymen who were about to go you know, into the beaches of Normandy. And the English you know, were there in, in force too. You know, they had some RAF guys there. And, one American um, infantryman said to, uh, to this Air Corps guy, see, you guys got it easy, man. We're going to be over there fighting in the mud and the slush and the slime in December. I mean, it's going to be horrible, you know. You guys are here. You've got women. You've got pubs, visits to London, the whole thing. And you're flying in comfortable planes and dropping bombs from 25,000 feet. And they said to this one guy, said, Hank, wh wh what do you do in the plane? He said, well... I sit underneath the plane in a plexiglass, clear plexiglass turret, okay, that is unheated. And uh, that's my position for the entire battle. They said, we'll take the ground. <laughs> we'll take the ground. And uh, different, different kind of thing. And if you flew on a mission, I mean, this is a typical B-17. 
And structurally, I like this shot because it shows you how structurally sound the plane is. But the, um, the skeleton, of course, is very thin. I mean, you can, you don't want to do this to an exhibit here, but you can knock a screwdriver, you know, and, and, and punch a hole right in the, uh, right in the plane. And uh, same thing with the, uh, with the Liberator. A bigger plane, that's, of course, the Mustang later on. Um, but I want to get to this position here. There's a Volterra gunner. Um, Rooney told me a story about a Volterra gunner, by the way, who, um, if you flash back to this, this kid, this isn't the exact kid, but he was at a base um, not too far from Thorpe Abbott's where the 100th Bomb Group was, and he was doing a story. And um, they brought him into the, into, the, into the tower and told him that uh, a kid was trapped in there. The hydraulics went out in the plane, and they couldn't get it out. You could actually retract the whole ball. And he, he got out through a hatch on the top, but they couldn't get him out. And because the hydraulics had gone out on the plane, they couldn't get the, um, the wheels down. So they had to do a belly landing. So they got a priest on the phone. And, um, uh, you know, uh, and the priest told the kid that he was going to die. And, um, and he, he landed, and, um, and he was uh, crushed like that. Um, Randall Jarrell who is a, very famous, was a very famous American poet who was in the Air Force in World War II, wrote a poem about this. And the, and the last line is, they, they washed him out of the turret with a hose. Yeah. Um, so you were happy when you got back alive, as Morgan here and the Memphis Bell crew were. A mission, and if you could take you on one just to show you what, what, what the procedure was like for those who aren't familiar with this, and I know a lot of you are, but patience. Uh, would begin in the morning, and the officers would arrive on a jeep. The gunners would already have been out there. They usually pitched a tent and uh, kept their guns greased and uh, had their little dogs with them and their bicycles, and they were close to the plane, and they had that plane ready to go, um, armored and ready to go when the, uh, when the officers arrived. Um, sometimes a priest would go out to the plane and bless the plane and bless the men before they went up there. Um, most of the bases had a Protestant as well as a Catholic uh, chaplain, but um, not, a, um, not a Jewish rabbi. Although uh, Bob Rosenthal told me, Jewish fellow, he said, I went to all the services. <laughs> Anytime there was a service, I was there. He's <laughs> completely non-denominational. Didn't bother me at all. Uh, <laughs> forming up. Can you see this at Newark Airport today? I mean, they say they have, air, you know, you have problems with air traffic. I mean, you know, flying every, taking off every 25 seconds. Um, and you get a sense here how big these bases were. They were laid out, uh, spread out like this, uh, because they feared something that never happened, and hardly anybody's written about why it didn't happen, and that is that the Nazis didn't mount, the Luftwaffe didn't mount massive raids, either with V-1 or V-2 rockets or with fighter planes, or dive bombers on, um, on American Air Force bases. That was the great fear of Hap Arnold, that that would, uh, that would, that would happen. Well, he almost got Hap Arnold with a, uh, with a fuzz bomb when he was staying near London. One landed a, a, couple, you know, a couple houses away. But uh, that's a typical forming up mission. And the problem was the weather. I mean, in, in England, and I lived there for a while, and, and it's perpetually cloudy. 
So you, but you could take off. See, you had to, you had to worry about three, three, four times of weather. You, it was the weather when you were taking off. Was it good or bad? If it's, if it's decent, you flew. But then you had to worry about the weather to the target, and then the weather over the target. Was it suffi you know, sufficiently clear to bomb? And then, of course, if you execute the mission and, and bomb your target, you have to worry about the weather on your return. And this remarkable shot was taken by a gunner on a B-17 of two planes colliding over an English base just as they arrived, they thought, safely home. Um, in flight, this is a stage shot, but it, 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 gets, it, it gets the message home. A Browning machine gun. They weren't very accurate. It was more for psychological security than anything else. I mean, it, uh, when the Luftwaffe went down, it was usually because of fighter, fighter planes, not the gunners from the planes, although they performed heroic work. But this guy's ready for war. He, you know, inside the plane, in, as I mentioned, in, say, over a city like Hanover in January, it could get as, as low as 58 degrees below zero. That's inside the plane with no heat in the back of the plane, not even insulation in the back of the plane. And um, the danger here, too, your gun jams. And in the fury of combat and the frenzy, you, you, you take your glove off and to clear the jam, and your hand would stick to the metal. And you pull it away, and you pull off you know, a couple layers of flesh. Um, frostbite, guys didn't protect their noses and their ears. and um, they, you know, they, and they turned black, and then they turned a lurid purple. This is days later. And then, as one doctor said, we used the Russian cure. We just let things drop off, and when things stopped dropping off, we could treat the kids. And frostbite was a, was a big problem. Another problem was anoxia. You were breathing through an oxygen mask, which you put on at 10,000 feet, but the, um, the mask could clog. It could clog for a number of reasons. It could clog from saliva, and it could clog if you got air sick in your mask. And um, you probably wouldn't know it, in the, uh, again, in the fury of combat. And um, six or seven minutes later, you're, you're dead. You pass out maybe in three minutes, and six or seven minutes later, you're dead. So lots of, lots of problems for these crews going up like that. Um, the, um, or you had a situation like this. This is Sherman, um, Sherman Small, a friend of mine who's still alive today, thankfully. Um, he wasn't in a Liberator, but he was in a B-17, and he's a tail gunner. And the tail was severed from the plane, as in this shot. And he said they were about 22,000 feet. And he had his parachute on, but he couldn't get out uh, the tail. And uh, he was kind of locked in there somehow. And... Um, he fell to the ground from 22,000 feet and lived in the tail. But what made it a little crazy for Sherman was this was on a Monday. On Tuesday, he was flying again. And um, he thought he was OK until they, uh, they hit Holland, where they ran into the German ACAC guns. And he got what they call coastal fear, which a lot of guys had. But Sherman had never had it before. This was his 18th mission when he was shot down. He was working to 25. And he froze up. He developed a, one of those phobias that I talked about. See, a, a typical guy in ground combat gets ground down by the experience. Um, Army psychologists who studied this, and Lord Morin, who was Churchill's um, private physician, did a tremendous book on um, breakdowns in combat. 
and called Anatomy of Courage. And Morin said, the thing about fear is, is you have to talk about it in relation to courage, because courage fights fear. Everybody's afraid, but courage can sometimes overwhelm it. And um, you only have so much courage, he argued. It's like a reservoir. And when you draw on it, or like a bank deposit, when you draw on it, it's depleted. And then you run out of it. And the army even figured out, like an army truck could get, you get 38,000 miles from it. You could get about you know, 86 days of guys on combat on the line, and pretty much they start to get a little goofy. But in the air war, it's a different kind of thing. It's a phobia. It's a fear. And, and, and what Sherman had was a fear of the wind. So by his next, by his 23rd mission, when he started to go up and hit the coast, he would freeze. And he wouldn't even know it. He was in what they call a torpor. He was unavailable to anyone. He had, his whole system had shut down. And they would carry him off the plane like a frozen Wisconsin log when it was over. And, uh, but he flew his 25. The guys covered for him. They should have turned him in, and they should have got him medical care. But he wanted to get through, and he told them that. I said, Sherman, how the hell do you do it? He said, I pretended I was in a movie. It wasn't Sherman Small. I was an actor. And these Luftwaffe, these guys were, they were props. And that's what got me through. I sat with him and did an interview with him. His wife said, the story's not over. Let's have lunch. And she said, let me tell you the rest of Sherman's story. He came home two weeks later after the war, and he flipped out. And uh, he went down to Don Carlos Medical Hospital in Florida, for the, you know, and he was there for, um, for three years. So that stuff can happen, too. And that was a problem, too, with the phobias. I mean, going through the flak field, when you entered the flak field, which is right over the target, you couldn't take diversionary action. You had to fly straight and level to the target. That was LeMay's policy. He said, guys, we got a bomb, and we need a steady platform from which to bomb. And if you don't bomb accurately, we have to go in again. We can actually save lives by doing this. And he was right. But that, that's no security to the crew who has to do it. And you see that stuff exploding in front of you, and you're dropping bombs from plexiglass nose of a plane, and, and that gets a little bit unnerving. And guys really started to get this. this the flak didn't bother them as much as the fighters early on, but once we knocked out the Luftwaffe, the flak by 19 in the summer of 44 becomes the major and sometimes the only problem. But it, it, it's, it's a lot like being bombed on the ground. There's a very close symmetry between a German family sitting in a cellar, a coal cellar, uh, Fraulein, Grandma, and the three kids, all under the age of 10, in a candlelit, stinking coal cellar, and they're just hoping that a string of Allied bombs doesn't fall on them. It's all luck whether they live or not. With these guys, it's the same thing. It's luck. At least with the fighters, you can call out the fighters coming in, 12 o'clock high, 10 o'clock high, this and that. You have a sense, and crew, they, they found, the Air Force found that crew morale was real high when there were fighters, because guys were working together as a unit. Crew morale declined dramatically as, as, as one air, air, the best book I've, written on, I've read on the air war is by Bert Stiles called Serenade to a Big Bird. He was a B-17 co-pilot and later flew Mustangs and was killed in the war. He would have been an F. Scott Fitzgerald. He was that good a writer. But he says that that happened to him, very tight crew. He said he, he had a very tight group of guys before they went up. But they went up in, in, during the flak stage, and he said it, you know, the morale wasn't there. And he said it must have been better when they were fighting the fighters. And I think he was, uh, I think he was right, because flak can cause you know, major damage, and guys saw it when they landed. They might not see the bodies, but they, they saw the wreckage, and, uh, and that was painful. 
And of course, ditching in the North Sea was always a problem too. We didn't have good air-sea rescue at first. We depended upon the RAF. We didn't implement a you know, good air-sea rescue until very late in the war. I love this picture because it looks like my junior varsity high school basketball team. I mean, these kids are so young, you know? I mean, incredible baby faces there. Um, a burnout crew kind of returning from a mission and, you know, and you went in for coffee and a few Red Cross girls on base, God help them. Um, they, uh, they were there. <laughs> um, Jimmy Stewart, you know, sometimes they brought him in to calm the crews. Clark Gable, 8th Air Force, things like that. So, you know, but anyway, um, we'll leave it at, at this. Um, the other thing is, how did guys, my students ask me this, so, what, how did they get in the planes? What got them in those planes? Knowing what they had to face. And... It's, you know, it's a combination of leadership and love. Good leadership on bases by guys like Jimmy Stewart who flew with his crews, okay? Rosie Rosenthal flew with his crews. The example of your fellow crewmen. And isn't it interesting, I find, in my studies of warfare, both the Civil War and the American, you know, you know World War I, World War II, you can't fight a sustained war. No army can. Not the Wehrmacht, the Red Army, anybody without love. The, the kind of concern you have for your fellow, the, the guys in your regiment or in your crew. That's what keeps you together. Because everybody who's served knows that a soldier's first battle is with himself. How will I perform? As Henry Fleming in the Red Badge of Courage says, will I fight or will I run? So that's your first battle, and, 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 and what sustains you is the courage of others. And when and one person's courage breaks down, others do generally as well. So that thing, that, that indefinable characteristic of, of, of love and concern and, you know, this, this band of brothers idea, um, the Shakespearean idea that everybody's stolen, um, that, that kept these guys, that kept these guys together. And they had good help when they broke down. Uh, they had a thing called Central Medical Establishment in England, and it was staffed by six or seven of the most eminent, who will, would be after the war, eminent psych psychiatrists, not psychologists, psychiatrists, real medical men, and um, in, in the world, uh, all went on to preeminence. And they did, uh, they did a terrific job, a terrific job with these kids. And I don't think, going back to my original idea of no generals, young crews, I don't think in the history of warfare, so much authority has been placed in people so young. Whether they got to the target and hit it and knocked it out and got home, depended in large on the leadership inside that airplane, okay? The crew togetherness and cohesion. It's an immense amount of authority to, you know, to lodge in several human beings. Now, um, there's another form of coping, and after this we can, go briefly to the map and talk about, you know, the results of this all thing. Coping on the ground. Because, as I mentioned before, 28,000 of these guys, 8th Air Force, over 34,000 total U.S. airmen in Europe, wind up as prisoners of the Nazis. And there, they're in Stalag Luft 1, Stalag Luft 3, Stalag 17, if they're enlisted man. And 
Early on, they saw that they weren't going to be killed. But toward the end of the war, they didn't quite know what was going to happen to them. Would they be killed? Jewish airmen in particular uh, didn't know what was going to happen to them. I have a, a somewhat humorous story of um, an airman. You read my book, Louis Lovsky, and God bless him, Lou's still alive with his wife Molly. And Lou was on his first mission, and he got nailed with some flak, and he barely got out of the plane. He was a navigator and a liberator. And um, next thing you know, he's parachuting to the ground into Berlin. And as, as he said, not a friendly place, I didn't think, you know. And, uh, but see, Lou had another problem that day. And uh, before they left from Kearney, Nebraska, um, a couple of the guys said, hey, you know, England, they got women over there, and the men are in Burma. And uh, it's a great opportunity here. So um, they all went to the PX, and they bought Hershey bars and stockings and whatever. But Lou bought 12 dozen prophylactics. And uh, I said to him in an interview, Lou, are you that sexually active? He said, no, uh, I was a virgin, but I was very hopeful. <laughs> and uh, he said, um, but he stuffed them. He stuffed them in his dress uniforms before he left England. And he thought to himself as he's coming down into the Reich, he thought, mm, in three minutes, I'm either going to be dead or a prisoner. In either case, what they're going to do, and they did this quickly with downed airmen, they, they're going to go into my room and strip my, to my bunk in my barracks, and they're going to strip it, and they're going to take all my clothes and put them in a footlocker and send them home. And, <laughs> And my mother, who's an Orthodox Jew, is going to open this thing up and say, did I raise some sexual maniac, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but Lou was captured. He was sent to a camp. He arrived there the day after the Great Escape. And, uh, but he said his, 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 his continuing war worry was what happened at home until another airman from the same base was captured. And uh, he said to Lou, when he saw him, just said, Lou, we took care of. <laughs> so he knew. He knew it hadn't gone home. Uh, yeah. So coping there. And, and a lot of these guys, a lot of these guys, let me show you a shot of this. A lot of these guys became evaders, like um, uh, the, um, that's Lou, by the way, on the right. And a uh, tough little guy from Lynnhurst, New Jersey. Um, we took this picture. Uh, we got, I got this picture from the 8th Air Force Museum. It's a great shot. This guy was an airman who landed in a uh, apple orchard in, um, in France. And they were making cider at a nearby plant. And the owner of the plant is on the right. And uh, he hustled this kid and got him away from the plane. That's his son on the right. And somebody jumped out in front of them and took a picture. And uh, we had somebody show up at the museum with the picture. And it's on display now at the 8th Air Force Museum down there. So some of these kids were able to, um, to, to get out. Um, Chuck Yeager was able to get out. He flew with the 8th Air Force as a Mustang pilot, and he was downed in southern France. And uh, he was crazy enough to actually join the resistance. The Maquois picked him up, the French resistance, and they were messing around some dynamite one day and to blow up some railroad uh, lines to prevent the Germans from reinforcing the Normandy beachhead. And Chuck said, you know, hey, you guys don't know what the hell you're doing. And he said, my pappy was a miner, and I know how to handle explosives. And they told him, and some of them spoke English, they said, the minute you touch these explosives, you're a terrorist, as it were, to the Nazis. You're no longer a prisoner of war, okay? And now if you're captured, you're caught, 
you know, it, it won't be by the Luftwaffe police. It'll be by, you know, you'll be taken into the Gestapo and you'll be shot. But he did it anyway, and they dropped him off in the Pyrenees when he taught them how to handle the explosives. And he carried an airman, another airman, over the Pyrenees. That airman was shot. Chuck picked him up and brought him to the other side and dropped him off and got back in the war. Um, an incredible, incredible experience. And for everyone, for, the estimations are that uh, I've interviewed a lot of Belgians about this and, and, and Dutch, you know, Dutchmen and things like that. The average estimate you know, right now is that one woman, and usually women ran these escape lines, one woman died for every airman that was saved. Uh, because these lines were constantly infiltrated by the Nazis and broken. And uh, so, you know, coping there. And then at the end of the war, and, and it, I was going to use this as a first chapter of my book, but it's a concluding chapter. Over 30,000 airmen were moved from camps in Pomerania, Poland, Lithuania, uh, uh, Prussia, out of the way of the advancing Russian army. And this is in January of 1945. So they were told one night in the middle of the night, you know, I was talking to Nick Katzenbach about this the other day, who served as Attorney General under Kennedy. He was in this thing. And uh, he said, you know, just woken up in the middle of the night, told to go out in the cold. And he said, we feared leaving the camp. That's what we feared. We were safe inside the camp. Because when we were going out of the camp, we were going to march through the towns that we bombed. And I don't think there's anything like this in the history of warfare where 30,000 Warriors marched through the country they destroyed with their bombs, turned into a, into a flaming brickyard, and they marched through the very streets of the towns, through the very by the very families whose children they've killed and things. Unbelievable experience. They were lost to the Red Cross. Um, Eisenhower knew about it. Churchill was pressing for, for um, rescue missions. A, and it, 86, 87 days later, they started to show up at a place called Moosburg. It's like the European Baton Death March, and hardly everybody, anybody talks about it. And hundreds of these guys are alive today to tell their tale. Hundreds of them. Um, now, um, did bombing work? Did all this, was all this suffering worth it? Yes and no. And we can talk about this extensively in the Q&A, but just a rough outline here. It did not work for a long time when we were bombing U-boat pens um, on the Brittany coast, we were bouncing our bombs off six bunkers that were six and seven feet, U-boat pens that were six and seven feet, you know, reinforced concrete. So they bounced off and the bombs did like ping pong balls. And we were getting massacred by German flak and fighters. So we're losing planes and we're not hitting targets. That's the theme, of course, of 12 o'clock hot. Those are the pioneers. In the, the Bob Morgans in the early years. Then the war becomes one in the following year, 1943, we go into Germany and we start mounting deeper penetration raids all the way to places like Regensburg and Schweinfurt and places like that. And those raids without escorts are terribly, uh, the guys suffer unsustainable casualties. By October of 1943, there's a myth about this, by the way, that the Air Corps was going to call off the air war or fold itself into the RAF or they stopped bombing because they took too many casualties. That's not true. You read the orders and everything like this. The head of the 8th Air Force at that time, Ira Aker, was ready to go into Germany again and again and again and again in December and January without escorts. It was just the weather that held him up. And, and, and the record proves that. He was relieved of command that January by Hap Arnold, and they put in Doolittle. 
And Doolittle, you know, was under tremendous pressure because Eisenhower had taken over the 8th Air Force and he said everything has to be commingled, all, all the forces in England, the, Air, the, you know, the British and American forces, strategic and tactical, have to be brought together to make sure that the Luftwaffe doesn't, you know, disrupt the cross-channel invasion. I mean, I stood in, on the cliffs of Normandy with uh, Tom Brokaw and Steve Ambrose, and Steve was trying to explain, you know, to Tom, who was going to do a documentary on this, how these kids got, 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 you know, slaughtered on the beaches like this. And, you know, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, it's, what, it, 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 it's who wasn't here that was important. If they had had a U-boat threat at that point, but they didn't, the U-boats had been knocked out of the Central Atlantic by May of 43, or if the Luftwaffe had been there, it couldn't have happened. Churchill said this in 1940. Unless we kill the German Air Force, there can be no landing in Normandy. Well, Doolittle understood this, and he released the fighters to fight the German Air Force, but he had a new plane, the Mustang, the miracle plane that nobody said could, could build. Even the Germans didn't think they could build a fast fighter that was also long range and could handle punishment. And now these fighters could fly actually with um, drop tanks even further than the bombers who were laden down with really heavy bomb loads. And that's what determined the range of a bomber. So now Doolittle went around and he told the air commanders that basically they were going to bomb prestige targets not ball-bearing plants anymore or electrical grid or anything like that. They're going to hit Berlin, for example. Targets where the Luftwaffe had to come up, and the purpose of the bringing the Luftwaffe up was to have the Mustangs massacre them. And the bomber boys understood this. They were bait. They were over there to be bait. They didn't care. Spots didn't care what they bombed as long as they brought up the Luftwaffe. And then they told them the unfortunate news that they're extending their missions by to 35. And so they're flying more. And I think there ought to be a monument on Omaha Beach to the 8th Air Force and the Tactical Command as well in England. Because think about this. There were 10,000 American airmen who were lost in the five-month lead-up to D-Day. We suffered 6,000 casualties, not killed, casualties, but about 2,000 killed on D-Day on Omaha and Utah Beach, almost all of them on Omaha. Well, if you factor in the Battle of Normandy in the Vukage, there were 18,000 airmen killed to make the landing possible. And they should have a cemetery. They should have a monument. That's, that's part of the story. And see, that is the most important air victory of the war because it allows the invasion to take place. It also clears the skies of German pilots. The Germans still continue to produce planes. It didn't matter anymore because they're starting to run out of skilled pilots. And, and that's why so many jets that they mounted, you know, performed so poorly, because they, they had inexperienced pilots. And then we started to hit oil. Now, because the Luftwaffe is depleted, we can really go after true strategic targets. We hit oil. Oil is the blood of modern warfare. We go after oil targets. And we go after targets like this at Leuna, these huge oil mills that are outside cities. And they seem like easy targets to hit, you know, like a big steel mill sitting out in the middle of nowhere. But um, they're not because they, they threw up smoke and they had um, fake plants built all around them. They were tough targets to take. Uh, we lost 10,000 bombers taking Luna. You know, that shows you the cost of something like this. And when we destroyed places like this, we didn't destroy them with pinpoint bombing. We just saturated them with bombs, saturated, because we could now. We could fly more missions. There's less opposition. We got more planes coming out the, the assembly lines, more pilots, better trained crews, more crew, you know, flight hour training. 
we were able to just hit and hit and hit. And, and through saturation bombing, we don't hit any of the main facilities. We knock out the nervous system. We knock out the veins. We knock out, the, in other words, the water, the electricity, the whole works, and eventually the plant, the plant closes down. The Germans reconstruct it. It's a battle between construction and reconstruction, and we win it. By September, and this has been hairy, by the way, we hit oil at just the right time because German oil production peaked just around D-Day, okay? And German fighter production peaked the following September. So in that summer, if we hadn't hit oil, they'd have had 4,000 more planes in the air against our Air Force with fuel. So Spatz's decision against Eisenhower's opposition initially to go after oil, because Ike wanted everything on the D-Day thing, was a very wise one, and they knocked out that part of the German economy. The other thing that became controversial is they went after coal. They went after railroads as a way of getting coal. You don't buy a bomb a coal mine, but you bomb a marshaling yard, which is where trains are carrying coal. And we create a coal famine in Germany. So by January 1945, one month after the Battle of the Bulge, Albert Speer, Hitler's minister of munitions, goes to the Fuhrer and tells him, we've lost the war. But guess what? He writes the letter, but doesn't give it to the Fuhrer. He tells, because he's, he's yellow. And he tells him that two months later. He was a, he was a Hitler sycophant. Uh, who should have been hanged at Nuremberg. But anyway, the, um, when you go after a target like this, the problem is, and this is where our bombing starts to shade into RAF bombing and becomes a little bit of area bombing. We're, we're aiming for a precision target, but when you throw 100 planes, no, let's say 1,000 planes over that target, and the lead bombardier is the only one with a Norden bomb site, and he spots the marshaling yard and drops over it. Everyone else drops about the same time. And you kill the marshaling yard, but you kill a lot of the town, too. Because unlike the oil plant, the synthetic oil plants I described, these facilities, these marshaling yards, are right in the middle of civilian areas. But I put to you a dilemma that I put to my students all the time. Because you can't simply shout out moral decisions, like bombing's wrong or bombing's right without knowing the facts. The facts are these. And you make up your mind. If you don't bomb, if you do bomb, you're bombing through overcast, clouds, bad weather, with radar, with radar that is notoriously inaccurate. You know there's going to be collateral damage, but you know you're going to hit a, an important target. Or because you're going to bomb inaccurately and kill civilians, you stop bombing. And more Jews die, more gypsies die, more slave laborers die, more American soldiers die, and the war lasts longer. That was the decision, so they continued to bomb. And I th think they did the right thing. And these twin blows on oil and coal knocked out the Nazis. Now, the 8th Air Force doesn't win World War II, and I should mention the 15th, which I haven't talked about today, flying out of Italy, which did equally heroic duty. The Air Force doesn't win the war by any means, but it shortens the war. And it does another thing. It, it brings home the lesson to the Germans after the war, almost every GI who marched through Germany and every reporter like Margaret Gellhorn and people like that said, there's very little remorse in Germany about the war. Margaret Gellhorn put it well. She said, Germany is sick and doesn't even know it. There's so much anti-Semitism. There's so much, the feeling was we lost the war because of mistakes we made militarily, not because we tried to take over other countries. You don't cure people of that by bombing them, but what you do do is you destroy their trust in the leadership the Fuhrer principle, the thing that drove the Nazi regime. And that's the first step toward, toward moral transformation. People have to have that broken. 
And by turning their country you know, into a brickyard, we do that. We do that. And Roosevelt said that very early in the war to Henry Stimson, the secretary you know, of the war. He said the Germans have to feel, unlike they did in World War I, when not a single battle was fought on the Heimat on German soil, they have to feel the fury of war. And it's a horrible way for them to experience a transformation like that. A second thing, too, in a recent German volume on the air war, they point out very importantly, and I, I've argued this long before and, 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 and to everyone I could talk to, there's no question to me, but if the war had lasted into August, it, it ended in May, that's only a couple more months, if it had lasted into August, we'd have dropped the first atomic bomb on Berlin. And we'd have dropped the next one on Hamburg. Now, I talked to Paul Tibbetts. He said when he was training, he was trained equally to drop a bomb on Japan or to drop a bomb on Germany. At the Dugway Proving Grounds in Utah, they constructed a model German village and a model Japanese village. Neighborhood, I should say, not village. They even brought over an eminent architect, Eric Mendelssohn, to do it, the German thing. They were going to hit both targets, either one. They'd have, put, they'd have lengthened those runways, they'd have brought over uh, B-29s, and they'd have bombed Germany to smithereens. It had been 100 Dresdens. So uh, it would have been a very different kind of war. And um, it, it's, it, 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 it's hard to contemplate. You can't conjure the whole thing up. But I think that's, that's that, that would have been a different kind of world we would have been living in if we had done that, major atomic warfare against the, uh, against the Germans. Now, your museum has a great little slogan that you preserve the stories. And I think that's the most important thing you can learn from stories like this about the 8th Air Force and the individual stories of the heroes who flew the planes and the heroes who didn't come back. And I just want to mention one, and because he, he died recently and was a friend of mine, Robert Rosie Rosenthal. And his story sums up this whole thing. Rosie joined the Air Force, as I mentioned to you before, on Pearl Harbor Monday wanting to be a fighter pilot in the Pacific. Well, he was, he said, that's the Army. You know, I became a bomber pilot in Europe. And um, he flew 52 missions. When he finished 25, they said, Rosie, go home. And he said, I'm not going home. Because he was a little older than most guys when he went in. He was a lawyer at the time. He'd gone to Brooklyn College and Brooklyn Law. In fact, he's in the Brooklyn Athletic Hall of Fame for both baseball and football. And uh, he had been in New York City in the late 30s. He used to go in to buy jazz records. He loved Duke Ellington. And he also stopped at the cinema to see the newsreels. And he saw the newsreels of Hitler. And he said, I was a Jew, but Hitler was a menace to mankind. It wasn't the Jews. It was a, he was a menace to mankind. A nation had dropped into barbarism and needed to be stopped. And he said, the thing that stuck in my mind was not the pictures of the Fuhrer and the salutes and all that bullshit. He said, the thing that really stuck in my mind were the beatific smiles on the faces of German men and women as they saw the Fuhrer, like he was some demigod dropped from the skies. He said, there was a nation that had become sick, not just one man. And so he said, I'm going to fly until Hitler's dead or I am. And uh, on his last mission, and we're putting him up for the Medal of Honor, you know, as I speak, uh, on his last mission, he was flying over Berlin on February 3rd on a big raid. And um, his plane was hit, and uh, he hit the bailout bell, and the, the crew got out. One guy lost a leg going out. It was, you know, everybody was in such a hurry and everything, but, you know. And then when Rosie was in the plane alone, and this is the third time, he, he will have been shot down this for, for the third time, um, he couldn't get control of the plane. 
to the point where he could get to the, stabilize it, put it on automatic pilot, and get to the escape hatch. So he said he was like quicksand. He was like trying to move through the quicksand. But eventually he did get out, and he parachuted out at a pretty low altitude, who knows, maybe five, 6,000 feet. And he landed right in the middle of a firefight between the Wehrmacht and the Red Army, because he was behind Russian lines. And uh, he just says, I hope the Reds win this one. And, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they did, and, and I, mean, I know I'm going over time, but they did, and, but this big bear of a Russian soldier came running at him, and, you know, and he, he thought he was, he thought he was a, a Nazi, you know, he's screaming, kraut, kraut, you know. And Rosie just said, all I could think of, he stood up and he started screaming, Pepsi Cola, Coca Cola, Babe Ruth, <laughs> New York Yankees, you know. And so the Russian embraced him, and he went to Moscow and had dinner with Abraham Harriman and flew his last mission, you know, pulling out, you know, um, Dutch POWs, uh, excuse me, French POWs. And, but the great ending of the story was he was back at his law firm. He'd only been there a week, a big Manhattan law firm. And he went back, his war was over, and it's the summer and uh, August of 1945, and, you know, and then just after that, his surrender on the Missouri. And he starts to read, <laughs> oh, by the way, he tells me, he's sitting at his desk and he said, I thought this was the most exciting job in the day, but, you know, the, you know uh, uh, in the world. And but after what I've been through, boring, you know, I mean, a law firm compared to that. And um, so he starts to read about Nuremberg. And he said, you know, I should be there. I should be there. And he went down and re-upped and they sent him over as a trial lawyer. And on the way over, he met another young trial lawyer uh, Navy, a woman named Phyllis. They fell in love. Rosie said, I didn't know if I was seasick or in love, but I gave her the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> but he, they got to Nuremberg, and he wrote a letter home and he, uh, to her father, who was this very stern, patriarchal guy, and big Wall Street lawyer, and he said, I want to marry your daughter, and she's the greatest thing in the world. I'm asking your permission. He got it back. One, you know, two, two little letters, no, a telegram. So he turned to Phyllis and he said, well, that's it. She said, what are you talking about? She said, I told you that in order to marry me, you had to ask my father for my hand. I didn't say he had to give it to you. <laughs> and Rosie said, from then on, I've always mistrusted my own wife, who's a lawyer, you know. I mean? <laughs> but he interviewed, he, I should say interrogated, he interrogated Gary, before he committed suicide, Yodel, Keitel, Field Marshal, Albert Speer called them nodding donkeys because they nodded you know, every time Hitler said something. And uh, she went after I.B. Farben, uh, the petrochemical industry that uh, was using Jewish slave labor. She prosecuted them. He had a chance also to go after guys that had prosecuted an American airman. In one case, a German doctor had beheaded an American airman, boiled his head in, in water and used it as a uh, decoration in his house. Um, you got to read those Nuremberg trials, all the atrocities against the airmen. But Rosie said at the end, he said, you know, trials go on. These guys, he said, just seeing them, those former strutting Nazis that I saw at the Nuremberg rallies in the films back in New York at 37 and 38, seeing them now reduced to this, out of uniform, cowering, waiting for the hangman, he said was a closure I needed. He said, my war was over. Two months later, he was home, and Phyllis was pregnant. Thank you. I appreciate it.